Welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into an opportunity. I'm Vincent Herringer. Every week I talk to entrepreneurs, investors and experts about what they're doing to solve the climate crisis and get New Zealand down to zero emissions by 2050 or sooner. This Climate Business is brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. The New Zealand Climate Change Commission released its landmark report in late January. The 650-page discussion document sets an agenda for how New Zealand could achieve its greenhouse gas emissions reductions to align with our international obligations, such as the Paris Agreement, and also achieve that goal of becoming carbon neutral by 2050. It's a big document with lots to say, and implications that some say are as radical as the Rogernomics revolution of the 1980s. But is it radical enough? And what does it not say about the need for change? To explain the document and the early reactions to it, I'm joined by the climate change team, or at least two of them, from newsroom.co.nz, Mark Dalda and Rod Orum. Mark and Rod, thanks for joining me this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Well, thanks for joining me on this um, COVID-disrupted morning. This is the first day of a of another lockdown, but uh, as as we say, we've been here before, and we know how to do this now. So, um, what we might do, uh, Mark, is just—I I wonder if I could put you in the hot seat and and explain for us this big document. First of all, what is? Give us a summary. What is the Climate Change Commission? It's headed by Rod Carr, former uh, Vice Chancellor of Lincoln University, uh, I believe, um, and uh, and former uh, Deputy Reserve Bank Governor. Tell us about this commission. What is it? Yeah, the Climate Change Commission was set up by the Zero Carbon Act, uh, which was passed in 2019, to essentially advise the government on decarbonizing and help the government set pathways uh, to decarbonize. It's independent, um, so it sits outside of of sort of traditional political government, uh, which means that ideally its advice will be received in a nonpartisan way, uh, compared to a sort of a government policy or what a ministry might come up with. Um, it's modeled on the, uni- uh, the UK's Climate Change Commission, which was set up in, I believe, 2010, and has been a very successful model there. So I think the idea was that we'd be able to apply the same thing here. Um, among its many responsibilities, uh, it's tasked with coming up with emissions budgets for successive five-year periods. Each of those uh, budgets sort of says, in the period between, say, 2026 and 2030, New Zealand can emit X million tonnes of carbon dioxide uh, equivalent, um, which is supposed to help create a a trajectory down to meeting our eventual net zero 2050 target and our methane reduction targets in 2050. there was a sort of consideration at one stage that the commission would be able to dictate these emissions budgets and the government would be required to follow through. That's not the case in the actual legislation. It just provides uh, recommended budgets and the government has to consider them, but it can come up with its own if it, if it would prefer to. To what extent is this commission regarded uh, as bipartisan? Do you think that if there was a change of government that... Uh, the recommendations that eventually fall out of this commission would be listened to? Is it is it a serious uh, bipartisan commitment, do you think? There's certainly a bipartisan commitment to the 
commission itself. So having the commission exist, be independent and provide all this advice was one of the things that National was most supportive of in the Zero Carbon Act. In the end, National did vote for the Zero Carbon Act. Um, it passed uh, unanimously, uh, although David Seymour didn't vote for or against it as he wasn't in the chamber at the time, but you can still say unanimously because no one voted against it. Um, and given that it sort of has this veneer of independence and, and bipartisan acceptability, whether its recommendations will be received uh, in an equally uh, nonpartisan manner, sort of we're going to see out, play out over the next few months, particularly as those recommendations are quite a lot more ambitious than the current trajectory for New Zealand, which already isn't necessarily uh, a subject of nonpartisan agreement. Uh, that is indeed the conclusion. In fact, I'll read a statement to you which you wrote, uh, which says the report found New Zealand will miss its emissions reduction targets if it doesn't engage in, and this is a quote from the report, strong and decisive action now and recommend ambitious limits on the amount of greenhouse gas the country should be allowed to release in the next 15 years. So does that mean that whatever commitments have already been made are insufficient and the Commission is suggesting that we actually need to be more aggressive in whatever actions we're taking. Yeah, I think there's a, a sort of something important to tease out here, which is that New Zealand has two different kinds of commitments. We have a domestic emissions reduction sort of trajectory and target, and that's set in the Zero Carbon Act. That's to have net zero emissions of long-lived gases by 2050 and a 24 to 47% reduction in methane emissions by 2050, um, all from 2017 levels, and also from 2017 levels, a 10% reduction in methane emissions by 2030. So methane declines slightly and all other gases go straight down to net zero by 2050 under our domestic commitment. But we also have an international commitment under the Paris Agreement um, that is uh, more ambitious or meant to be more ambitious than what we can complete only at home because it allows us to purchase carbon credits or fund uh, offsetting and emissions reducing activity in other countries, um, which we couldn't use to fulfill our domestic targets, but we can do for international targets. And the international targets are sort of conceived of as this is what doing our fair share looks like, uh, given that New Zealand has historically emitted quite a lot more per capita uh, mm. carbon dioxide than other countries. We should probably be doing quite a lot less in the near future, but decarbonizing that quickly may not be as practical practicable as um, as helping other countries decarbonize quickly as well um, is the argument for for sort of allowing some overseas mitigation in our Paris target mm -hmm. um, in regards to the commission it found both that uh, it wasn't tasked with reviewing the suitability of our domestic targets, but it found that we're not on track to meet those. So we're going to go well above the um, net zero 2050 target and well above the 2050 methane reduction target if we continue on current policy settings. So it said something need to change there. And it also was tasked with, with, with looking at our Paris Agreement target and uh, determining whether that was consistent with doing our fair share and limiting warming to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. And it found mm -hmm. that as well was, was not compatible with that. So it needed to be uh, upgraded to be more ambitious. So we would cut more emissions in the Paris target, which would mostly mean doing more overseas mitigation. So the bulk of the document is, is focused on the how, how we will get to there. And uh, I guess, you know, it's, it's a big document, Mark. Uh, uh, we, we could be here for some time, but would you like to just take us 
through some of the highlights. You know, where are the biggest changes going to be felt? Maybe look sector by sector. I mean, perhaps start with transport. Yeah, um, certainly it does say transport is the prime target for rapid and significant decarbonization. It says that because we already know how to decarbonize transport. That's mostly through turning fossil fuel cars into electric cars, but also through allowing people to walk and bicycle more, making it easier for people to take public transport when they need to, um, getting cars off the road and particularly polluting cars off the road uh, by providing any other option than a polluting car to get where you need to go. Um, they expect transport emissions to decline quite significantly in the near term. It'll take a little while to ramp up from 2025 or so. But once you get to 2035, which is the end of the commission's sort of forecast period, they expect transport emissions to have reduced quite significantly. Um, they offer a couple of possible policy suggestions for how you get there. But they note that that's sort of not exactly within their remit. And Therefore, they're just sort of outlining one potential pathway to uh, emissions reductions. Mm -hmm. The government could choose to accept that or they could choose, oh, we won't do this one policy, but we'll do something else to make up for it elsewhere. Um, but among the things they suggest are uh, a ban on importing fossil fuel vehicles sometime between 2030 and 2035. Um, that lines up with what a lot of other countries are doing. The UK has just moved its ban from 2035 to 2030. And, and there's a risk, the commission says, that if we don't follow suit, we will see uh, all these polluting left-hand drive cars that would have gone to the UK Im uh, imported to New Zealand. And once you have a car in New Zealand, people drive it till it, it falls apart. So that means if you import a car in 2030, it'll be on the roads for 15 or 20 more years polluting, even if everyone else is buying EVs at that stage uh -huh. uh, in uh -huh. the future. How about in agriculture? Because this is in some ways the elephant in the room, uh, unaddressed by governments so far, yet one of the biggest contributors through probably methane, but also through nitrogen. Yeah, um, there's a, quite a, the commission spends quite a lot of time looking at agriculture. Um, there's been heavy disagreement within the sort of green community as to whether they have come up with a suitably ambitious approach to ag agriculture. Um, their recommendation is based on what current technology is available, they say. And under that, um, under that uh, remit and under the remit of keeping production and profitability roughly stable over time, mm. they've sketched out uh, a path which sees methane emissions reduced to um, within the range that we're targeting in 2050, but the sort of lower end of the range in, in terms of ambition. So there's still more that could be reduced, uh, they say, if new technology comes online. The key sort of, I guess, controversial uh, suggestion is that herd sizes fall by about 15%. But the commission says, even in, in that scenario, uh, milk production remains stable through the 15-year period that they're projecting, and uh, meat production even goes up a little bit, even as herd sizes reduce. Um, and that's based on sort of using farm management tools you know, fewer animals per hectare, uh, but still increasing productivity of those animals. Uh, and the reason for uh, this sort of, I, I suppose, uh, perhaps if I could use the word modest uh, assumption about what could be achieved is, Rod, it's 
the report assumes we're working with existing technology, right? There is there is no new technology that's coming in and there's no change to the way we live. It's just changing perhaps the volume of cows or the type of cars we drive. That's very much um, the um, philosophy behind this report. So, for example, in agriculture, um, it's identifying management practices, which some farmers are, are already using. And the effectiveness of those has been very well recorded, for example, in the agriculture report done um, by the Climate Change um, in, uh, Committee, which was the interim body before we got uh, the final commission we have now, and also by the Biological Emissions Reference Group uh, report the year before that um, so that's um, so the concept here is only to get those existing practices which also have demonstrated greater profitability for farmers um, spread across um, all of farming now that's quite a big task because you in, inevitably have a bell curve of capability um, amongst farmers um, but Ironically, even though we had suggested and promoted the idea internationally of having um, a global um, agricultural greenhouse uh, gas um, research uh, effort, uh, and that was an idea that we put on the table after the failed Copenhagen talks, um, we've put very little money into that um, over all the years since. So we've never really focused on the um, uh, on the bigger picture about um, where agriculture can go. So, so we might come back to some specific criticisms that you've articulated in newsroom later, but let's just talk about first the reaction to this report. Mark, uh, what did the government say when the report was tabled? The government has sort of said that they roughly accept the recommendations of the report. Um, that doesn't mean that they'll implement every policy found within it, but that they uh, plan to hew to the emissions budgets that the commission comes up with and um, that they sort of roughly see the trajectory the commission has outlined as, as one that the country should take. Um, the opposition has sort of equivocated, I guess you might say, um, saying that they want to get a better look at and, and understanding of the modeling that underpins the report. Um, in particular, their concern is around the report's estimate of, of the economic impact of decarbonization. So the report suggests that um, the sort of cost of decarbonizing is about 1% of GDP. Uh, so they sort of forecast forward to 2050 and they say, well, if you on current path uh, trajectories, our GDP will be $512 billion in 2050. If you take our path, it'll be $508 billion. So it's you know, $4 mm -hmm. billion in 2050. And that doesn't take into account, A, the benefits of decarbonizing through um, you know, improved health outcomes and you know, possible new industry and, and, and so on. And it also doesn't take into account the costs of not decarbonizing in terms of, A, sort of carbon credits and, and, and uh, sort of pressure that we face from the international community and B, you know, if the rest of the world follows suit and doesn't decarbonize the impacts of climate change that we'll also mm -hmm. have to pay for. Um, mm -hmm. So it's a very conservative estimate uh, and even so still finds that it's, the impact on the economy is quite limited. But National says we want to take a look at that because we've seen much higher numbers for the economic mm -hmm. cost and, and we want to make sure that that's, um, you know, the, the correct figure that we're operating off of. Maybe that's a sort of cynical um, way of going against the report when you know that climate change is quite a p politically popular issue and turning it into an economic issue instead where you're stronger. Um, but it's not sort of the full-throated uh, 
support of the report that that say the government has given. Um, mm-hmm. It's also worth probably adding that National voted for the act under Judith Collins. Uh, sorry, under Simon Bridges, but is now led by Judith Collins, who said she at one point considered crossing the aisle to vote against the Zero Carbon Act, uh-huh. despite the rest of the party voting with it. Um, so there's a, sort of some in- internal dynamic changes that that uh, mean we might be dealing with a different national party on climate uh, today than we were in 2019. Well, how could about industry? Industry, oh, sorry, go go. Add one thing on the politics. Um, when National voted uh, for the zero carbon legislation, um, it said that when it was next in government, it would change seven things in it. Um, some of them are minor um, and could be adjusted without. A big change to the legislation, but others are major. Um, and that completely undermines the central concept of this legislation, um, that business clamours for certainty in terms of policy making over a long time so it can invest properly. Indeed, we all need that to be able to uh, play our role. Um, but if National followed through um, on those seven points, it would substantially knock about the, 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 uh, the fundamental piece of architecture. On top of that, um, after the most recent election, uh, National changed its uh, climate spokesperson, um, and it's now um, uh, Nash, uh, and um, he ranks 17th um, in a 33-member um, caucus. Um, so he's got no status and no standing. Um, he is um, a winemaker and uh, b- by trade before he be- went into politics uh, relatively recently. Um, so he brings that kind of background to it. Um, but uh, he's got a very steep learning curve, um, and I can't imagine him playing at all um, a very uh, effective role in this debate. Um, so I'm afraid I remain very, very sceptical um, that National really will follow through with um, um, sensible criticism, because that's always welcome, um, but also um, very full-fledged support. Mm. So that's all. It, 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 but for the moment, it's a watch the space because there has been we're still in a, a consultation period, right? For for this report, how about an industry, Rod? How how did the how did the farmers and the farming lobby react to this document? Um, Federated Farmers, uh, which has always been the most vocally um, anti all of this, um, was uh, by its standards pretty consideratory. Um, but it was stressing that um, we should certainly work on science-based solutions, and yet it hasn't really been at the forefront of um, supporting that science approach, um, as I was mentioning with our very weak performance on the um, Greenhouse Gas Research Consortium. Mm. And... Um, Indeed, though, it was rather um, relatively easy going on the question of falling stock numbers. So uh, Andrew Hoggard, who's the president of Federated Farmers on Newstalk ZB, said, well, you know, that's we can easily cope with that. Uh, We've been doing that for years in the sheep and beef um, um, business, which is completely true. And um, but I still sense that um, not just Federated Farmers, but a whole uh, bunch of people gave very moderate and sort of vaguely supportive answers or, or statements with the re- release of this draft report. What will be really telling is what they put in their submissions, uh, which um, that process is underway now and closes in mid-March. Um, and then that, I think, will really um, show where they'll still be pushing um, to favour um, the, 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 the things that um, are best for them. 
Um, I will say one other thing about farmers. Um, Federated Farmers did stress the work of Haywaka Ekonoa, and this is um, an industry or, um, initiative um, which it proposed to the government um, uh, to work with the government on figuring out how farmers can um, measure, manage, um, price and, and mitigate um, emissions. That work from the conversations I've been having about it recently does seem to be going well. And there's a real deadline on it because under the agreement that that was put in place by the current government last term, um, the uh, Climate Commission reviews the progress of that work by mid-2022 and then recommends to the government whether that work is on track um, or whether uh, it's not on track and therefore farming should be brought into the ETS um, uh, ahead of, um, uh, I think, by 20. 2025. Mm-hmm. So um, the, the emissions trading scheme uh, yeah, is yeah, what absolutely. I mean by ETS. Yeah. And, and so um, I think there's some really useful things going on in farming. But my biggest point with farming generally is that it's still very focused on these um, easy things we can do now. And I've never seen any um, expression of um, from uh, even from the likes of Fonterra or uh, about how the whole Um, nature of land use and farming practices and food and diet are changing very significantly around the world because in aggregate that land use um, farming um, set of issues um, is one of the largest um, causes of climate change and um, huge things are underway and for us to sit here saying oh well we're pretty low emissions compared with other um, farming systems will be all right Um, Mm -hmm. Absolutely misses the revolution around the world. And that's my central disappointment with um, the farming sector. To, to be fair to the report, is it the, the, the job of the Climate Change Commission to come up with the strategies for how sectors could get there? Or is it more about setting the, the target and then for industry and government to work together on what the solution would be? I think it's the former uh, sorry, the latter. Um, the, the commission sets the targets. What it did to set those targets is figure out, uh, it sort of model what is possible to achieve and um, then essentially say, okay, the existing technology means we can get to this point, get to this point. And you can choose how you do that, but mostly it, it sort of will be via the whatever they stuck into the model in the first place. So that's what they're telling us in the report is my sort of rough understanding. You know, mm-hmm. this is what we put in the model to get the emissions uh, budgets that we've come up with. This is a plausible pathway for therefore meeting those emissions budgets. Mm-hmm. Maybe you'll figure it out uh, and, and do it differently. Maybe a new technology will break out and it'll make it easier. But the budgets are reviewed every five years. And if they continue on the same methodology, that means if you get tomorrow a methane vaccine, then when they review their budgets in, in uh, five years' time, they say, oh, it's possible to get much lower methane uh, emissions. Then do that instead. So then you'll have to do the herd size reduction and the farm management strategies and the methane vaccine. You won't just be able to use the new tech to reduce the need to do the old stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Part mm-hmm. of it is just because, you know, taking a step back, it's this is all based on modeling by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, where they say emissions in of this type of gas or in this sector need to reduce by this percentage to limit warming to 1.5 degrees. But they don't say limit warming to 1.5 degrees. They say to have a 50 to 66% chance of 
limiting mm -hmm. warming to 1.5 degrees with limited or no overshoot of that target, um, which means you still have a 34 to 50% chance of not limiting warming to 1.5 degrees with uh -huh. limited or no overshoot. So yeah. it's sort of a gradient here. The more you do, the better your chances are. So there's not, you know, it's not reduced methane by 47% by 2050, and we've done it. We, we got it. Climate change is, is solved. It's do as much as you can, and, and this is, you know, the starting trajectory, but we're going to keep ratcheting up that ambition and keep putting emissions lower, faster, uh, as technology becomes available. And uh, my sense is, Rod, that that is your disappointment with this report, specifically in regards to agriculture, that relying on existing technology, simply doing a little less with the current farming practices is not going to achieve anywhere near the level of uh, change that you think is required. Can you explain to us in more depth what what your frustration is and what kind of change would you like to see happen in agriculture? Um, uh, let me use a simple analogy, but I think it's uh, perfectly appropriate. Um, if you go back, um, say, about 10 years, um, Volkswagen said, we make absolutely fabulous fossil fuel cars. We're brilliant engineers. Uh, there's a pathway for us to reduce emissions from petrol and diesel cars. Um, and that's what we're going to do. <clears throat> and of course, they then went off the rails in 2015 when it was revealed um, that they were failing to um, meet regulatory standards. And, and therefore, um, they were um, screwing around with the testing systems. Um, and then they have latterly um, committed to um, phasing out um, uh, um, fossil fuel engines and thus moving on to e EVs. So um, I think that that's the headspace of farming now, that it thinks that it can just carry, it just sees its trajectory is very gently moving along. Uh -huh. um, um, in, in being slightly less emitting um, than it was. But there's a, a far bigger issue here, which is that, um, as I say, the way land is used, the way farming happens, the way farm is, uh, food is produced around the world, uh, we've got three things coming together. Um, it, that in itself causes um, the climate crisis, which then only inevitably uh, impacts on agriculture's ability to produce. But at the same time, a lot of the food we produce um, is not actually very healthy for us at all. So we've got these three intersecting crises of um, climate um, uh, availability and quality of food um, and, and of land use. So the big focus is on um, systems that uh, start to work on all three of those um, in terms of solving all three at once, if you like. And, and that goes by various terms, there's various ways of doing it. But um, the term most use, uh, most commonly used is regenerative agriculture. So you're farming in a way that helps ecosystems regenerate. Mm -hmm. um, so we're not just sort of trying to reduce the negative impact, but you're trying to farm in a way that creates a positive impact. And the beautiful thing about that for us is um, our, our farming systems um, can deliver that very positive um, impact uh, on regenerating ecosystems. But competitors such as meat grown from stem cells um, or leafy plants grown in um, contained environments um, or um, various kinds of um, biochemical fermentation, um, um, they can only get to zero at best negative impact. They can't contribute a positive one. So I think that that's um, the, way, the best way to frame what New Zealand's farming's best opportunity is mm -hmm. and the failure of um, farming to um, even uh, enter into that discussion.
And does the report make any reference to uh, nature-based solutions or regenerative agriculture? No, um, uh, a few references to regenerative agriculture. Um, Nature-based systems is really important because um, uh, the climate crisis is because we humans have been messing around with natural systems. Um, So an inevitably uh, wholesome response uh, are what's known as nature-based solutions. And roughly speaking, all kinds of reports suggest that that will be about a third of um, our constructive response to this. And um, it's not just a question of, Um, planting trees or farming differently it's actually about um, drawing those nature-based solutions concepts all the way through into built environments and so for example you would um, we would build far more um, using timber rather than concrete and steel now there's mention of that uh, of of timber rather than concrete and steel in the commission's report Um, but it just keeps popping out these particular references without offering people um, any um, um, higher uh, print organizing principle, if you like. Mm-hmm. And, and my central uh, view on this is that um, we actually won't do enough about the climate crisis until we care enough, and we won't care enough until we understand that um, nature ecosystems are our life support system. We're absolutely hammering them. They are degenerating very fast. It's not just Um, the climate itself but it's the quality of soils it's oceans it's everything else and so that's why um, I think it's fundamentally important that uh, we need to uh, really lock on to um, that um, absolutely central point about nature. Do you think that the Climate Commission has been given too narrow a brief that it's that we're looking at the climate crisis too much as a singular problem rather than a a nested problem that sits inside a much larger biodiversity problem, for instance. Yes, and sits inside all kinds of other problems like um, uh, economic disappointment, to use a euphemism for inequality and the rest, uh, polarizing societies uh, and politics. And I'm not saying that climate is uh, solving the climate crisis uh, solves all issues, Um, but the way we approach it um, has to be a different kind of politics, a different kind of democracy, um, and a different kind of business, a different kind of economics. So we're only going to uh, pull off these um, uh, uh, huge tasks um, if we think in those terms. And that's very complicated because uh, we're trying to solve all sorts of things at once. And um, I think the Commission has done a good job, although of the 17 chapters, some are excellent and some are bad um, in terms of the quality of their work. But um, one some I, I sort of feel that um, in some respects it was a report written for one person, which was the prime minister, uh, to present something that um, uh, is straightforward and logical and despite all its complexity is doable, um, rather than um, setting that bigger context for us uh, uh, as to why this is hugely important, um, but how that um, more um, holistic response that I just was discussing um, would really unlock um, the ambition and the confidence and the tools and everything else we need to get this done. Uh-huh. M- Mark, you mentioned earlier that the commission is based on what had happened in the UK. That's over 10 years ago now. Does Do you share, uh, first of all, how does it compare with where 
Britain uh, is going with its commission? And do you share Rod's view about the, I suppose, the lack of ambition? Um, on the first note, uh, Britain has sort of uh, managed to quite significantly reduce emissions. Um, part of that is because they have had easier to abate emissions, essentially more low-hanging fruit, and that's in the form of uh, energy, mostly coal um, and gas, which they can replace with renewables. Uh, whereas we have an electricity system that is largely renewable already, and uh, abating the last bits of that, you know, is something we need to do, but it doesn't represent a large chunk of our emissions and it will be a bit more expensive than targeting, for example, our low-hanging fruit, which is uh, cars. Um, I don't necessarily share Rod's view that the report is unambitious. I certainly think it could be more ambitious, and I agree that it could have uh, perhaps a, a wider vision and guiding principle around things like nature-based solutions um, and, and why it's so important that we do act. Uh, the report doesn't get into the impacts of climate change all that much, um, which is sort of an important starting place if you're trying to explain to people why we need to uh, to reduce emissions. Um, but my view is that the report is a a major step up on where we already were, um, which is important. Uh, I think it's something that will stick um, in terms of it's something that the government will implement this government at least and. Um, once you start down that path, I think it's a bit harder to turn turn us around. Um, and I think that on agriculture, it is ambitious because of that sort of uh, quirk of how the emissions budgets are set that I mentioned earlier. Essentially, as new technology comes online, that won't defray the need to engage in existing emissions reductions practices. It will just add on a supplementary requirement to, con to reduce emissions further uh, in agriculture mm -hmm. and in every other sector. Um, mm -hmm. so it's sort of built on the same mechanic as the Paris agreement, which is sort of ratcheting up ambition every sort of while, you know, period as, as new technology comes online and as the problem becomes more apparent. Um, and so the hope is that we'll see, you know, in five and then 10 and then 15 years time, that ambition ratcheted up quite significantly. Mm -hmm. um, that's where sort of my view of the, the report's ambition hinges on that being ratcheted up in the future. Um, you know, if that didn't happen, then probably my view would, would alter somewhat. So you're saying come back to me in 15 years. I might be saying that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah Rod, yeah, yeah. final word to you. How, how do you feel the uh, reaction to this will be? And do you expect it to be watered down or, or is it likely to get more aggressive as a result of the consultation period? Uh, I, I don't think it'll be watered down. Um, it, I, I think what will play out, um, well, it, it could play out well, it could play, not play out well. But if uh, the um, broad architecture would remain and the government would say it's going to do this, that and the other, um, but then it becomes far too difficult um, for um, various ministries within the government to get their act together and and we've then really um, failed to deliver. Uh, I think that that's the highest risk. Um, I think we will see a lot of um, uh, self um, uh, pleading for particular positions um, in the, over the rest of this year before the government finally sets the carbon budgets and the pathways and policies um, by the end of the year. And also mm -hmm. crucially, 
um, uh, upping our United Nations commitment in time for the Glasgow negotiations, um, November 1st to 12th. Um, and the report is, the Commission's report is very clear that we have to increase that um, commitment as other countries are doing. So um, I think we're going to see an awful lot of debate um, over the course of the year. Um, and therefore, it's really important um, to keep people um, well informed about it. So that's the role of us as journalists, um, but also to encourage that debate um, just to, to you know, quite simply keep our feet to the fire on this. Mm. Um, mm. If I could weigh in what, with one last sort of comment, agreeing with, with Rod, uh, the commission's report has sort of been met with this conciliatory tone, I, uh, to use the word Rod used from, you know, high emitting industries. Essentially, no one's come out and, and condemned the report, um, which is quite different from what you might have seen, say, five years ago. But part of that's also because it is a draft report, right? On May 31 is when the commission's going to reveal its its final advice, and the government then has about uh, seven months to respond. I sort of am looking back to what happened um, in 2019 with the tax working group, where they came out with a recommendation for capital gains tax. And then there's sort of radio silence from the government and a massive war by the various interests, mostly won by the, the forces against um, the capital gains tax. And uh, then the government sort of is put in a position where they have no choice but to not accept the capital gains tax. And there's mm -hmm. perhaps a concern that you see the same thing happening after May 31, where essentially all the forces of uh, pollution uh, ally together to band against the commission's sort of most ambitious recommendations. And if there isn't an equal... Um, uh, force arguing for them and, and for perhaps even more ambitious measures, then you, you run the risk of um, the government being put into a politically, essentially having to make a politically difficult decision, which this government rarely does. Hmm. Really does. And and puts then the in a responsibility on us as citizens and also organisations to come out in support of this document, but even perhaps more aggressive targets. Yeah, it, it, the Paris Agreement is similarly sort of structured on, um, it requires mass action and it requires um, mass pressure to for governments to to commit to more ambitious reductions. And it'll be the same thing here, that, that the system is reliant on political pressure on the government um, of the day. And, and so mm -hmm. that would be sort of... In, in, increasingly important to marshal after March 31, uh, May 31. Mm. I, I could live with uh, what the commission has outlined as long as we actually delivered on it. Um, so uh, I think um, not looking ahead and thinking that delivery is something that happens on down the road, we need to make sure that um, this year's debate, which is so crucial for us to set these pathways, um, we're really, really pushing uh, the delivery capability there um, from government, from business, from society as a whole. Um, mm. So we need to be very focused on on pr the practicality and the um, uh, intention of, of delivery. Mm. Well, Rod Oram and Mark Dalda, thank you for joining me for explaining the uh, Climate Change Commission report, and we look forward to discussing more. I hope you, uh, I hope you have a great week, COVID-free week. That's right. Thanks. Thanks. You, you as well. 
See ya. Thanks for listening to This Climate Business. I hope you enjoyed the programme. There are more episodes as well as notes and blogs on our website, thisclimatebusiness.com. I'm Vincent Herringer, and if you know someone who deserves to be interviewed on our show, email me, vincent at thisclimatebusiness.com, or find me on Twitter, vherringer, that's two E's, one R. Meanwhile, I'll be back same time next week, and no hurrah.